Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is time, once again, for us to lose ourselves in... How should we describe science, Stu? The miasma of science. The miasma will do. Yes, my name is Chris, and today, well, I'm looking at some big things in the universe. Uh, There was a recent news report about astronomers having discovered the biggest explosion ever since the Big Bang, the beginning of the universe. And so I thought... Biggest explosion ever. How big can it really be? I mean, have they seen a Michael Bay movie? Wow, that's multiple explosions. Yeah, so I am going to I am going to look at the sensationalism and say, is this really the biggest explosion ever? Because turns out there have been a lot of superlatives used in astronomy. Um, spoiler alert: this actually is the biggest I could find. But we'll get to that. Okay, uh, Stu, what have you got? Well, I'm looking into a story from Siberia. Um, and all sorts of things are happening in Siberia, mainly things to do with melting ice. Um, the permafrost in Siberia is melting at a faster rate than usual, should we say, uh, and it's releasing all sorts of weird things, that are um, some of which are coming back to life after thousands of years frozen in the tundra. A la Captain America. Yeah, well, <laughs> hopefully there's no frozen superheroes in there that we haven't heard about, but uh, you never know. Yeah. You never know. Well, we also have Claire uh, operating remotely this week, and she is interviewing Ellie Michelides from Remember the Wild about their upcoming Wild by Nature short film festival where you can enter films about nature, about the natural environment. So you can actually put in your own films. You can put your own. They've got a call for entries out now. Try and win a prize of some kind. That is correct. So find out for that shortly. On with the show. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. And there was a recent news report on the biggest explosion ever seen in the universe end quote, uh, observed in the constellation Ophiuchus, uh, 390 million light years away. I, I, I know the constellation Ophiuchus. Yep. It's the serpent holder. It is. It is indeed. Yes. Uh, one, actually, because of the movement of the, the planes of the stars, is actually in the horoscope now. Look... Look, that story comes up every few years. Yeah. I don't know. Let's not go there. No, no, no. no. I just, I just think it's interesting. Way, yeah. I think people who are into horoscopes are kind of serpent holders themselves. That's, okay, one way of looking at it. Now, um, but yeah, look, I saw this claim about the biggest explosion ever seen in the universe. And, you know, there is a lot of sensationalized science reporting out there. Yes. Um, so I thought I would look into that particular claim. And I had a look at news stories going back 10 years to find out if there had been other claims to the biggest explosion ever in the universe. Doesn't mean this can't be the biggest, but had people talked about this a lot. And it turns out, yeah, there have been a lot of things claimed to be the biggest explosion in the universe. Um, so I guess, but, you know, I mean, it could be the new biggest explosion ever it, seen in the universe. It could be. I think there's just a lot of exaggeration. You know, yeah. people see a claim like that and they just repeat it. Um, and who's going to bother to fact check? Well, that's how, how do you even fact check? How do they know? How, how do you compare, you know, astronomical explosions to each other? Okay. I'm going to ask a question again. Who's going to fact check? You. Me. That's who's going to fact check. Yes. Correct answer. So, yeah, look, I'm going to run through some of these and just also try and put this in the context of, yeah, yeah, the answer to your question of how do we know what is the biggest? How do you compare? 
First, though, let's just rule one out, the obvious one. The Big Bang. Yeah. Now, this is generally not considered to power people to be in the running. Most people say it is not actually an explosion. It is actually, it's not things moving apart from a point in space. It is space itself expanding. But look, I don't know. It's however you want to interpret that. I could, I, could, I could see it being an explosion. It's got the word bang in the title after all. Some other people might say, well, it was actually before the universe or started the... How do you count these things? So, How can you count before the universe if there's no time? Look, I figure that either it's counted, in which case it's obviously the winner, yeah. or it's not counted, in which case... Let's just move on anyway. Let's look at the biggest explosion since the beginning. So they're, they're basically saying it's an expansion of space, not an expansion yeah. of matter or something like that is yes. their excuse. Okay. Uh, look, I don't, I don't want to go into the definition, yeah, sure. but let's, let's just go through it. So let's run through some of the options. Now, as you can probably imagine, supernovae. Supernovas are often referred to as the biggest explosion in the universe. Supernovas or supernovae? Supernovae is probably the correct term. I think you can go either way. Um, it's harder to say supernovae. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Easier to rhyme, though. But yeah, they also referred to the biggest explosion in the universe. Um, there was a New Scientist article in 2016 that confidently proclaimed supernovae the biggest explosion in the universe. Now, supernovas, what are they, of course? Well, they're... Exploding stars, basically. That is correct. They're a star that explodes. They often leave the core behind as a neutron star. They vary in size. It's usually like really massive stars. They vary in size. Um, I tried to find the biggest in terms of the size of explosion. This is not necessarily the brightest, mm-hmm. um, but the biggest that I could find any data on. So I looked at in terms of the total energy output from this explosion in joules. Right. Right. So the biggest I could find is actually from 2010. It's a hypernova. The hypernova just means a really big supernova. Yeah. Yeah. And it is called PS11080i. And it gave off about 2.3 by 10 to the power of 45 joules. That's a lot of joules. That is a lot of joules. So that's our starting point. That is the biggest supernova that I've been able to find in terms right. of energy produced. And supernovas, of course, you know, they all, they're very bright. You can see them across the universe. They give out many times the light of, the, of our galaxy yep. just in a single exploding star. But they're not the biggest, brightest things you'll see actually in the sky. The most common answer you'll get when you Google biggest explosion in the universe is something called a gamma ray burst. Now, a gamma ray burst, uh, so it's not a thing itself. It is essentially a description. A gamma ray is a type of radiation. Yep. It's the highest energy part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So by a gamma ray burst, it's just something giving off gamma rays brightly somewhere in the sky. Yeah. These um, were first detected in um, the 1960s. The US sent out spy satellites to try and detect Soviet nuclear tests, and they noticed these mysterious gamma radiation that they couldn't recognize. But it's taken a long time to figure out what they could be. Did they think it was aliens or, or you know, some evil spy satellites or something? Well, they didn't really know what it was. They probably, I think they thought it was some astronomical thing. But, okay. you know, it's taken a while to actually get the ability to get more about it. Now, a lot of them are believed to be due to really huge collapsing stars that basically give off so much energy that it's in the gamma ray part of the spectrum uh, and visible from great distances. The brightest of those ever observed was in January 2019. And that was about 2.5 by 10 to the power of 46 joules. So about an order of magnitude bigger than right. um, than the, uh, the the hypernova that we looked at before. Yep. Now, it's not known for certain that's what it is. That's what most people believe it to be. It could be other things as well that have a similar kind of brightness. That um, There are different kinds of things that could produce gamma ray bursts, though. There is also the collision of neutron stars, they were confirmed when a uh, gamma ray burst was observed in the same time as some gravitational waves um, given off. 
by the neutron star collision. And so it was a great way to compare that you could find out that the, the neutron star colliding had caused this gamma ray burst. So that, was, right. um, that happened in 2017. But neutron stars aren't actually big enough. They create a kilonovas, which is not even as big as a supernova. What is bigger, though, is a colliding black holes. And you don't see them. They don't give off visible light because they're black holes, but they yeah. give off energy in gravitational waves. And it's around the order of 10 to the power of 48 joules. So another 100 times what we had with the... Um, the, wow. uh, the gamma ray burst. So it's about five times the mass of the sun if you convert it all to energy, given off in gravitational waves. But the latest um, explosion observed is even bigger than that. So this was observed through observations of X-rays and radio waves of the constellation Ophiuchus, and they found an enormous bubble about one and a half million light years across. That's about 15 times the size of our galaxy. And so this is the shock front of an incredible explosion. Uh, it is believed to be from an active galactic nucleus. Now, galaxies have often have a supermassive black hole, which is like mm-hmm. a million times the mass of the sun in the center of them. And sometimes when they suck stuff in, they've got a really strong magnetic field. They shoot it out of the poles in this enormous burst of material, which gives off a lot of radiation. Uh, the energy it gives off is about... 5 by 10 to the power of 54 joules. Wow. So we've gone up another kind of, what, million times yeah. the size of our, of our colliding black holes. And this we're talking about hundreds of millions of times the energy of your typical gamma ray burst. Wow. Yeah. Or if you like, about 25 million suns. Now, the people who discovered this one, they claim that it is several times bigger than the previous record for an active galactic nucleus explosion, which... That one was observed in 2015. Um, that at the time was uh, also claimed to be the biggest explosion since the Big Bang. Yeah. So the re- recent one discovered was they found the size of the bubble and they say, saw there was something in the past. The, the one observed in 2015 is still going on, but it is about 2.6 billion light years away uh, in the constellation of Camelopardalis, the giraffe. Right. Um, so it's not going to get us, but it might get the giraffes. Wow. Now, some distant giraffes. Now, the question you're wondering is, is there anything bigger than this? And I did find something bigger than these active galactic nuclei. This is not really an explosion, though, but this is the, the bullet cluster. Mm. Now, the bullet cluster is actually it's 3.7 billion light years away. It is two galactic clusters, like so two clusters of galaxies colliding. And the collision is so powerful that it created a, a bullet-shaped shock wave, hence the name bullet cluster. Yeah. And it separated the light matter from the dark matter of these galaxies. Wow. So it's famous for being a demonstration of, of the existence of dark matter. Now, the total energy from that collision is estimated to be about 10 to the power of 57 joules. So about 1,000 times bigger than we had as our biggest explosion. Wow. So that is the biggest thing I could find, the most violent event in the universe so far that we've observed. But as I said, there's a lot of these reports. They're sure to be big ones in future. Just always, you know, when you see something claiming the biggest explosion in the universe, just remember some of these numbers and, and go back and check. I'm Maggie Adaren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. Do you guys know what nematodes are? Are they like the enemies of frogs? Like, you know, nemesis toads or something like that. <laughs> Maybe some of them. 
It is possible that mm. there are nemesis nematodes out there that do mm. bad things to frogs. I mean, I've I know a little bit about nematodes. I don't know don't know much about them. No, they can be uh, parasitic and um, some of them can yeah, yes, yeah. and so they could be parasitic of frogs potentially. I guess they're sort of wormy type things. They're they're very much like worms. They're basically tiny little creatures that are everywhere on Earth. Ah, oh, oh, great. Uh, Especially with that information you gave us just before then. <laughs> yeah. So they look a bit like tiny worms, but they're not very closely related to earthworms, even though some of them live in soil. But only some of them live in soil. They're actually adapted to every known ecosystem on Earth, from the top of mountains to deep sea trenches and everywhere in between. They live in the tropics. They live in the Arctic. They live in the Antarctic. They just live everywhere. They live in your gut. Yeah. All yeah. over the place. They've even been found up to three and a half kilometres below the Earth's surface. Wow, really? Yeah, in South African mines. So that's deeper underground than any known multicellular animal. Hang on. Found... Were they there before the miners were yeah. there? They sort of found them. They just everywhere they look, they find these nematodes. Incredible. This is concerning. <laughs> it's not at all, really. Oh. Um, but they do make up about 90% of the animal life on the ocean floor. So. Of all of the living animals on the ocean floor, 90% of them are nematodes. You can't wow. even see these things. They're just, you know. That's and a large amount of nematodes. That's oh. a large amount of nematodes. How's this for a number? The ones that, the ones that live um, in under the water, like some marine nematodes, they're nematodes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Uh, the estimated number present in soils is about 60 billion nematodes for every living human. Wow. How's that for a mind-blowing number of nematodes? We are outnumbered. That's just, that's just the ones in the soil. And as you said before, they live they everywhere. They live everywhere. So there are somewhere between, and this is this is a really big range, there's somewhere between 25,000 and a million species of nematodes. <laughs> it's not a very accurate range, no. really. They're sort of, yeah. it's, it basically, uh, they can't really agree on that because it's they're an, really yeah. hard to identify the mm. difference between the species. So some, you know, when we get good DNA analysis, they'll probably get more accurate figures of how many species there actually are. But like, oh. even if there was twenty five thousand, that's a lot. That's a lot. You had to sort through though to go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, could there be another one? Yeah, well, well, I also imagine there wouldn't be that many nematode specialists. There are there. quite a few nematologists. Oh, there are. There oh. are because they are, you know, because they are such a huge biological group and they're so numerous. Um, some of them are parasitic of plants and animals, as I said before. At least thirty-five species occur in humans. That means, you know, on our skin and stuff, but also probably getting into our gut and all over the place. Really, we're talking very, very tiny animals. So they're tiny again. Oh, less than a millimeter. In size. Are they see-through? Mostly, yes. Mm. So you basically don't see them. Um, but mostly, you know, the vast majority of nematodes are just doing their own thing, eating what they eat, and obviously reproducing in massive numbers because there are so many of them everywhere. What they have found is that the density of nematodes is particularly high in soils in tundra, which is a kind of ecosystem found in cold parts of mostly the northern hemisphere where trees can't grow because of the cold. So it's so cold that trees don't get to grow. It's just too cold for them to to get big. Uh, And boreal forests, which is the forest that goes all the way around the Arctic Circle, 
So they're really, really common in the soils of these areas. Mm, the cold areas. The cold areas. Um, so it's probably not surprising that nematodes can tolerate very cold temperatures and they have a keystone role in polar ecology where other animals find it difficult to survive. The nematodes are doing basically everything. They just sort of rule the rule the polar regions, basically. And you thought it was polar bears. It's actually the nematodes. Nematodes, yeah. And there's probably, you know, nematode parasites of polar bears. So who really rules the poles? <laughs> Wow. Um, Not Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) Nematode Santa Claus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the risk of existing in these kind of conditions is they may be frozen if the conditions get too cold. And in some places, the ground is permanently frozen in what is known as permafrost. So uh, recent global high temperatures have begun to melt areas of this permafrost, which has, you've probably heard about this, how it's released pockets of methane gas that were trapped in the ice. Um, And also uh, a couple of years ago, they discovered a giant virus that was frozen in the, in the permafrost had, had been released. Uh, It only attacks amoeba though. So we're pretty safe from that one, but there's all sorts of things frozen in there. Um, But also has yielded other organisms as it defrosts, including nematodes. So, these nematodes that they found have been frozen not for decades or centuries, but millennia. Oh, God. Thousands of years these nematodes have been frozen. According to research published recently, two species of nematode have been identified from samples taken from sites in Siberia that have been frozen since the Pleistocene era, or epoch, depending on how you want to look at it. So the Pleistocene was when many species of megafauna existed, like woolly mammoths and ground sloths and dire wolves and saber-toothed tigers. Uh, And these nematodes were frozen around that time, which was something around 42,000 years ago. So those nematodes evolved with a completely different ecology, completely different big species running around. Different plants, different animals would have been a completely different place, really. So this isn't really all that surprising to find to find frozen nematodes in soil where nematodes are a very common kind of creature to find. But the next part is pretty amazing. When the samples were taken back to the lab, the frozen nematodes thawed out and woke up. Oh no. So, so okay, <laughs> maybe so... I don't know. Maybe they'll be good for us. Maybe. Mm. So, like, people, you often hear about people digging up frozen mammoths mm. from presumably a similar time period yeah. in that kind of area and going, oh, how can we bring the mammoths back to life? But you're saying the nematodes just spontaneously wake up. They basically just let them thaw out and they started wriggling around. Um, they started moving around and eating and behaving perfectly normally as far as we can gauge because we don't really know what these nematodes specifically would have done. They're very similar to species that still exist. Um, But, uh, yeah, we don't really know if they're behaving normally. One thing that they can't test, uh, all the samples are female. So whether they can breed or not is unknown. But all of their other bodily functions appear to be perfectly normal and they are just carrying on as if they haven't been frozen in permafrost for 42,000 years, which is pretty amazing. Uh, it's the first time a natural form of cryopreservation has been observed in multi-celled animals, hmm. where they've actually been able to revive them. It'd be interesting to find out 
what other surprises the melting permafrost might deliver. So our guest this week is Ellie Michaelides from nature charity Remember the Wild. And Ellie is here to talk to us about their new nature film festival. Ellie, welcome to Lost in Science. Hello, Claire. Thank you for having me. So, Ellie, tell us a bit about the film festival. What is it all about? So, Wild by Nature is a new um, short film festival all about celebrating why we love Victorian nature so much. So looking at all the amazing, unique things we have here in Victoria and uh, celebrating the fantastic community groups that are doing awesome work to protect our nature and, you know, why we just love spending time in it. You said it's a short film festival. So uh, how long are the films that uh, people can submit? The films have to be under five minutes, including the credits. Uh, And we also have three themes that people need to respond to when they make their films. So the first theme option is uh, caring for nature. So looking at how individuals and how community groups do fantastic work, you know, conserving our natural environment. Um, The second theme is called Together in Nature. And that's all about spending time with um, family and friends out in nature doing awesome activities. And the third theme is uh, focused on Dandenong Creek, which is a creek that runs through Melbourne. And the reason it's uh, the theme Dandenong Creek is because we're partnering with Living Links, uh, which is this awesome initiative um, through the Port Phillip and Western Port Catchment Management Authority. And they're doing a huge project around, around the Dandenong Creek and making it an awesome place for people to spend time. So it sounds like there are so many different options that people could go out and make a film about. Um, Are there different categories that you can submit, Um, you know, if you're a primary school student or a high school student? Absolutely. So uh, the film festival is open to all ages and we have three age divisions. So the Pobblebonk Prize is open to our primary school students or students under or people under um, 12 years old. And we have an awesome prize for that one. It's a $1,000 voucher for a wildlife experience with Zoos Victoria. Uh, Yes. We also have our Swamp Skink Prize, which is for our secondary school students or people aged between 13 and 18 years old. Uh, And the prize for that age group is a $1,000 voucher for um, video productions gear and also a hands-on workshop with Remember the Wild's productions team who make awesome nature videos. So you'll be able to get some really cool skills from them. And the final age group is our over-18s. That's the Black Swan Prize. And we've got a $3,000 cash prize for that one, which is pretty cool. Um, Well, it sounds like there are some incredible prizes and that would be a huge incentive for a lot of people participating. What sort of tips can you give to people if it's their first time getting out into nature and uh, making documentaries or making a film about nature? Well, we don't particularly want anything fancy. You could even make the film on your phone if you wanted to. Um, We just really want these films to celebrate our amazing nature that we have here in Victoria. We're so lucky to be surrounded by some really incredible natural environments. Um, And so I guess films that, that really showcase the beauty of our nature and really highlight why it's such an important um, aspect of Victoria and why people should get out into nature more. We know that 
spending time in nature is good for us. And so it would be, you know, great to see those films um, highlight some of those benefits. So once you get all the films, will there be a community screening night? Yes, we'll have a community screening night at the Drum Theatre in Dandenong and that's on Saturday the 16th of May. Uh, We'll be choosing five of our favourite films from each age division to be screened at the event um, and we'll be awarding the prizes there as well. And we'll also have a, an opportunity to meet some local community groups and um, groups that are doing really great things in the area, um, in our natural environments. Before the event, um, we'll have a little kind of catch-up session for people. And, um, I mean, personally, Ellie, you're obviously a um, huge fan and supporter of the natural environment in Victoria. What different ecosystems or animals from Victoria do you hope to see in some of the films? Oh, that's a good question, Claire. Um, I think I would love to see some of um, perhaps some of the areas in Victoria that have been affected by the bushfires to be featured um, some of the alpine areas, because that's my favourite um, ecosystem. And look, I have to confess, I am a eucalypt mad person. So any amazing eucalypts that are featured in films will be a highlight for me. <laughs> How long do people have to make their films? And can people submit films from that have already made? So submissions are open at the moment and they will close on the 12th of April. So you've still got a little bit of time to um, create and submit your film. Uh, People can submit films that are already made. They have to be made within the last two years um, and have to be made in Victoria and featuring Victorian nature as well. Uh, So Ellie, how can people find out more information about how to make the films and how to submit Uh, So people should head to our website, which is wildbynaturefilms.org, and they'll be able to find out all the information about the age divisions, the prizes, the themes, um, the important dates for the festival, FAQs, um, terms and conditions, everything you can think of. Great. Well, all budding filmmakers and um, all experienced filmmakers, pretty much just all filmmakers in general, make sure you take up the opportunity and showcase some of Victoria's incredible nature. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us this week. And I can't wait to see what films come out of the Wild by Nature, the inaugural Wild by Nature Film Festival. Fabulous. Thanks for having me, Claire. And that is it for this week's episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. Please email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We are also on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. You can also find us on your podcast app, your favourite podcast app. If you're able to give us a, a good rating and review on set app, then that will help other people to find our show. Otherwise, you can just listen to us on the radio where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 
3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.